They say being a parent is a full-time job, but I already have one of those. Luckily, I use Instacart to help me order everything I need while I'm stuck in meetings all day. So while Instacart is helping me get groceries, snacks for school lunches, and something for at-home happy hour, I get more time back to juggle my day job and my mom job. Save time by downloading the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $10 off your first order using the code INGREDIENTS10. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply. First off, this Tuesday, October 27th at 2.30 p.m. Eastern, I'll be hosting a live webinar discussing my recent policy proposal published on Lawfare about what the U.S. should do on Xinjiang. The link to sign up is in the show notes. I'd love to see you there and hear your contributions to such an important discussion. One more thing. Given how critical this upcoming election is to our future, I'd be remiss if I didn't use this platform to say a few words. Longtime listeners surely are not surprised to learn that I'm a Biden voter. In many of the China Talk episodes over the past three years, the incompetence and periodic malice of the Trump administration has loomed over our discussions on everything from the trade war and our relationship to our allies, to immigration policy, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, and this episode's topic of climate change. We deserve better, not just for managing U.S.-China relations, but for responding to COVID and building a more equitable society. This November 3rd, please vote. Make it a vote for Biden and do everything you can to get your friends and family to make it to the polls. This Saturday and Sunday from 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern, I'll be hosting a China Talk phone banking Zoom session and would love to see you there. Links to sign up to those events are in the show notes as well. Thanks, and on with the show. All right, so j- just say your name. <laughs> Lauri Myllyvirta. Is an analyst at the Center for Research on Energy and Clean Air, covering air quality and energy trends on China. Lauri, thanks so much for coming on China Talk. Thank you. So this is a pretty deep niche that you've spent a very long time covering. I'm curious if you could go a little bit into your China story and how you found yourself covering pollution and energy policy. I've been uh, following and being concerned about climate change and about environmental issues since I was in my teens. And then in 2012, I started after working in Finland, after working in different um, places, I started in my dream job, which was working on global coal with Greenpeace International. And at that point, the air pollution issue was very hot in China. It was just becoming a top-level political issue. It was all over social media. It was all over the news. And I found out that there were quite a few things that I could do to, to try and support people who were working on the issue in Beijing. So how important is what China does on climate change to the planet? Um, if you look at the past uh, couple of decades, uh, the growth in China's carbon dioxide emissions was the absolutely dominant factor in global emissions trends. In the 10 years following the China's uh, WTO membership, in particular, China was responsible for more than two-thirds of the increase in global carbon dioxide emissions. And if that kind of growth had continued, it it would have just meant that it's absolutely impossible um, for global emissions uh, to peak. Let's put it this way. China can't solve the problem alone, but with that kind of growth, China was very well able to prevent the entire world from solving the problem. Let's go back 10 or 15 years. Could you walk me through the history of the Chinese government's thinking about climate change? So I think it's fair to say that that for a long time, there have been more pressing environmental issues in China. The very concrete, tangible issues with air pollution, with water pollution, food safety, 
soil pollution are the ones that have dominated environmental concerns in China. Things like obviously land rights, displacement of of people and communities uh, because of big projects, including energy projects and so on. These have been the core issues of environmental uh, protection in China. The first, obviously for quite a while, the Chinese government took the stance stance that that climate change is a problem that has been caused by developed countries and they're the ones that need to take the lead in implementing solutions and shouldering uh, the costs the burden as it said in the in the international climate negotiation speak but then obviously the dramatic growth in China's CO2 emissions, per capita emissions exceeding um, the average of the EU in past years and so on have have flipped that equation. So now it's clear that China can't hide behind low contribution to the problem. The other thing that I think has changed is if you look at President Xi's thinking, I think he truly believes and sees China as uh, the fully developed modern socialist country in 2049, that is his big vision, for a country that has that kind of a destiny and that kind of a bright future ahead of itself to keep repeating that uh, we are a poor developing country that can't (laughs) take part in solving international problems. It just doesn't fit that new self-image that that the country wants to project and, and the chairman C certainly wants to project. Why don't you why don't you walk through the news? What what happened that you said was potentially enormous with emphasis on both words? A few weeks ago, in, in fact, uh, a bit more than a month ago at the nation's general assembly, so in front of all the heads of state of the world, Chairman Xi announced that China will peak carbon dioxide emissions before 2030 and aim for carbon neutrality, so net zero emissions before 2060. And this very much seems to have taken most of the decision makers, most of the uh, think tank folks and so on in China by surprise. There was there was a signal a week before that this was being talked about, but really no, no longer term uh, warning. And the other very significant thing is that this was a very much a unilateral um, announcement. It's not conditioned on what other countries do. And uh, before this, China already had a commitment to peak carbon dioxide emissions around 2030. So there was a small change to that. But the really big thing that changed is that before this statement, we really had no idea what the rate of emissions reductions would be that China would target after the peak. And I think given um, the negative trends in the past uh, few years, uh, there was a view that was becoming more and more com- common that there would be a long plateau of emissions rather than rapid reductions after the peak. So this really changed the outlook for what happens after the peak. Yeah, She's only going to be 77 by 2030. So he'll definitely have time to, to ride this one out. Talk a little bit, Lowry, about what falls out of an announcement from the chairman on something like this. How does it then ripple down through the, the various provinces and bureaucracies? That process uh, of translating this into concrete action is only just uh, starting. And uh, even the debate about uh, what this means for the next five years and so on is taking place right now. The overarching five-year plan 
that will set uh, economic targets and energy targets for 2035 is just being put together and there will be a host of other plans to follow after that. So it's really important to remember that everything that we we have officially is one sentence from uh, Xi Jinping. They've been working on the five-year plan documents for probably over a year now. And if your sense from talking and reading to talking to and reading with the Chinese think tank analysts about this is that they had no idea this was coming, what does that imply about Xi's policymaking strategy or the reason he decided to make this sort of such a dramatic uh, thing he would put in an international speech as opposed to something he could spend more time in hurting all the cats domestically around? I really think it, it is a signal. It is a direction to the uh, to the whole planning process, and, and I just I, I think it's not Xi's uh, style to interfere in the in the very nitty gritty of energy policy making. And if you look at what sure. the what kind of energy future was being talked about before this announcement, the power industry was talking about two to three hundred new coal fired power plants. So effectively, another coal power boom taking part over this decade and so on. And this is really putting a stop to some of that thinking and, and some of those those kinds of ideas. So I I think probably C had uh, two reasons to make this announcement quite quickly. One of them is, is that the key targets of the five-year plan are being finalized. And the other one was the international dimension that... Uh, you have at least the possibility of an administration um, in the U.S. that takes climate seriously and would work with U.S. allies to put pressure on China. And he most probably wanted to get ahead of that kind of a dynamic by taking a proactive uh, step. Yeah, I do find it pretty rich that the Republicans are now whacking China on saying your climate change uh, commitment is full of crap when you know they've done everything in their power over the past 15, 20 years to deny that this was an issue should, that should be raised to the national level in the first place. But neither here nor there. Um, to what extent does Xi's broader push for um, self-reliance f- fall under this big climate strategy? I think those are largely two separate policy directions, but they, of course, have significant overlap. One of the key things is uh, so for energy policy making, this uh, push for self-reliance or push for relying more on domestic production and uh, consumption means especially an emphasis on reducing reliance on imported uh, fossil fuels, so imported coal, oil and uh, gas. And uh, at the same time, when we didn't know what China's longer-term targets on climate uh, are going to be, you, you could make the argument that, that it makes sense to shift from uh, coal to gas in particular to help those longer term targets. And that might be true if you ignore the economics, if you're aiming for, let's say, 80% reduction in uh, CO2. But when you're aiming for net zero emissions, that means that you have to get rid of gas as well. And I think uh, that fits very well with with the push for self-reliance since China has very limited gas reserves at home. So one argument that you've seen made recent that, that some people have been making recently is saying if you push China on other issues like Taiwan or the South China Sea or, or Xinjiang or what have you, that you'll lose 
Xi's willingness to cooperate on issues of global concern like climate change. To what extent do you think that his commitment to these goals is predicated on the West not uh, pushing him too hard on other stuff? I think I'll rather question the kind of starting point, the premise behind that argument. I think the idea that you have to somehow reconfigure the entire dynamic in, in terms of bilateral relationship between countries it just doesn't make much sense. Yeah, I think for climate policymakers, the the state of international relations is what it is. And you find if, if that state is more cooperative, more a happy family of nations, then you find ways to work in that kind of an environment. And if that um, state of international relations is more uh, strategic competition, then you um, find ways to make progress on climate that look more and fit more um, that kind of a situation. If China and Europe and the United States and so on see each other as being strategic competitors, then we just in a, in a world that is that is serious about climate change, that competition just needs to look more like countries competing to finance low carbon infrastructure in emerging countries and countries using climate uh, progress on climate by using their technological prowess, manufacturing prowess to to bolster their status in that competition. And so f- for me either, or, and I think for in terms of reducing emissions, either dynamic works. I don't know. I, I think that the uh, argument about engagement versus uh, versus being tough and putting pressure is is slightly silly. There's no one simple answer. But but the point that I've been making is that there's no reason to think that, for example, for trade issues, being tough is the solution. But for climate issues, being nice and collaborative is the solution. There's no reason why one approach works on one issue and another approach works on another issue. Rather, it would be important that if there is a trade conflict, that climate is made a part of that. And uh, any any solution to the to trade conflicts is uh, conditional to to also making progress on climate. Laurie, let's get down to the to the nitty gritty. So, what are the potential scenarios that Chinese scholars have proposed recently as ways to meet these targets? And to what extent do you think they're realistic if she is truly committed to these goals? So, the easiest implication to point out is that uh, that China needs to start scaling up clean energy very fast and much faster than has happened so far. And that's something that looks very dramatic when you put it um, to numbers. We're talking about roughly tenfold increase in the solar, wind, nuclear, basically the total combined CO2-free power generating capacity in China. We're talking about replacing most of the use of coal and oil and gas in transport, industry, heating, with electricity produced from those uh, CO2-free sources and so on. So those are basically the entire economy, the world's largest energy-consuming economy running fully on CO2-free sources. Those are incredibly dramatic numbers, but the Chinese economic model is very well suited to mobilizing very large um, amounts of investment and very large amounts of new projects. I don't see that as a huge challenge. The other notable thing is that the clean energy industry has already reached a scale in China that is not that far from 
from the scale that you need. So we're talking about roughly a further doubling or tripling of the annual investment and the annual um, installations of, of clean energy. So that's definitely more than people expected for the next five, ten years, but it's eminently achievable given how fast the industry has grown in the past. What are the interests that would want to slow this uh, commitment down in China and how powerful are they? I think it's uh, quite obvious that that the coal industry, both um, the major coal miners, the uh, major coal mining provinces and so on are uh, not going to be happy about this. For the power industry, the dynamic is slight, slightly more complicated because it's the same firms, it's the same big five power firms that are both the largest renewable energy developers in China and the largest coal-fired power plant developers and operators. So on paper, you wouldn't think that they would have a strong preference one way or the other. But these power firms aren't, let's say, not fully integrated. They tend to be more like uh, a loose being of different interests. So you have the thermal power department that is quite separate from from the wind and solar and so on. And and that has meant that they've still, because of, of the relative weight and relative importance of the thermal power, so coal-fired power interests inside those firms, they have been very strongly coming down on the side of coal-fired uh, power plants. They've been the main voice lobbying for more coal-fired power and so on. So they're definitely having to reconfigure their expectations so far, for example, the China Electricity Council that represents these companies has been notably silent on the on the carbon neutrality pledge. Laurie, talk a little bit about Chinese financing of coal overseas. If you look at uh, the other countries besides China itself that are still building coal-fired power plants, with the exception of India, the vast majority of those plants and those projects are um, financed by Chinese Chinese banks and often the equipment is supplied by um, Chinese companies. And that what's important is that equipment and that financing is heavily subsidized. So that's not just supplying what other countries want to build, but that's creating an incentive. It's skewing the um, energy choices of other countries. So that's highly problematic. And this is something where President Xi and the Chinese leadership has been making the right noises, saying that the Belt and Road Initiative, which is the the wrapping um, around all these projects, needs to be green and so on. But so far, that has not translated into any kind of tangible criteria or measurable targets for what green actually means. What was important in the United Nations address that President Xi gave was that he was also talking about the need for a green recovery from COVID-19 and so on. So you would expect that that there would be some follow-up. But so far, unfortunately, the Chinese government has hid behind uh, saying that we're just building coal plants because other pl- other countries want to build them. Uh, I wanted to come back to something you said at the very beginning of the show, where you mentioned that like you thought that you, as well as other foreigners presumably had a role to play in helping inform and improve Chinese policy on this issue. 
what role do you think foreigners have to play in this and how has it changed over time? Presumably there's there were plenty of complaints from within China without you having to tell them that air pollution was was bad. But what do you think the dynamic is between uh, domestic and and foreign climate and energy researchers? I think one thing that is very important is that information and research has quite a lot of weight and importance in China. So there is one aspect of uh, the policymaking process that is, of course, very top-down and maybe more politically driven. But then there is another aspect that is that is driven by think tanks and research and so on, where especially when a high-level target such as carbon neutrality or cleaning up the air around Beijing has been set, then there's a space and a process where different researchers and uh, think tanks and so on can contribute. Where I do think there is a role for global organizations is that the environment inside China has gotten more restrictive, so it's not always possible for researchers inside China to talk about issues or even release data that is seen as uh, as somehow threatening um, to the government. So, for example, at times we've worked on things like overcapacity in coal-fired power and overcapacity in steel, where simply by uh, being able to look at the data without political constraints, compile it, and, and talk about the conclusions uh, was valuable. And that was the, those were issues where I thought that, that we had an important role to play because of that kind of independence. One more thing is, of course, that these things also travel across borders and having that kind of perspective of being able to cover a lot of different countries and make comparisons and so on can be valuable. So you said, Lowry, the with a coal overcapacity dynamic, all those lovely state-owned enterprises we were talking about would not be too happy to have a Chinese researcher publish this. But once it's out and in a rigorous fashion by someone from the West, then it can get into the bloodstream of the conversation in a way that the Chinese researchers may not have as many degrees of freedom to do so on their own. Is that sort of the dynamic? Yeah, that's an example. Anything else about the, the Chinese research community on this on this issue? I think in general, there's a lot of openness as well, in the sense that when a problem has been recognized, be it air pollution or now carbon neutrality, is an instinct among researchers and policymakers in China to ask, so who's done the best job of this? And identify those solutions and figure out which ones of them are applicable in China. And, and so that's another area where I think researchers who who understand a bit of the Chinese context and, and can track what's happening in other countries have a role role to play. Currently, I sit in Finland, in Helsinki, and Finland has a, has a target of being carbon neutral by 2035, so a full 25 years ahead of China. So I hope that some of the uh, thorny issues that we will have to tackle here will also pave the way for for China to tackle those issues on a vastly larger scale. Uh, Lowry, thanks so much for coming on China Talk.
经看到了满街满眼的口罩。谁在屋里寻找？谁在屋里呼吸？谁在屋里活着，又在屋里死去？北京。